Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is our sure and steady anchor. We thank you that through the wind and the waves that he remains consistent and that his promises are true and that his work continues to be applied to our life. We ask now that as we consider more carefully the body of Christ, of which he is the head, that you would give us a sense of clarity and conviction about what it means to be a local church. We pray this for the sake of your great name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. If you are new with us today or have been here for just a couple of weeks, you are picking up with us in the middle of a series that we are calling The Gathered People. It occurs to me that we do a lot of different types of teaching at Old North Church, whether it's on Sunday morning or in the classrooms or on Wednesday night. And we, we explore a wide variety of the books of the Bible. We engage in a lot of topics. We talk about how to be better parents, better husbands or wives. We talk about how to express faithfulness to the Lord Jesus in the different circumstances of life and how to battle sin in our lives. And, and on and on and on, a variety of aspects of the Christian life we talk about. But rarely do we talk about the church, what it means to be the church, or what the church is supposed to do. And that might sound a little bit bizarre in some ways, because it seems at times to be self-evident. But the more you look at the Bible, the more you begin to see that the church as you are experiencing it is part of what is happening in the larger scheme of the divine drama of God through history. What we've been trying to do through the series and what we are doing even more specifically today is to help us to understand the great significance that God, in which God looks at the gathered people, the church, and what he tries to accomplish not only in you personally and in us corporately, but what he accomplishes throughout the course of history because of the church. And today we are going to do that by looking at the next in a long line of descriptions the Bible gives about the church. So far we've talked about the church as a gathered people. That is definitionally what the church is. The word church means assembly or gathering. We have talked about the church as a redeemed group of people, as a worshiping group of people, as a people who make up one body. And today, we are going to talk about the church as a representative people. And it's important to think about the church as a representative people because the most important thing to God is himself. The reason why the most important thing to God is himself is because he is of the highest value. The second most important thing to God is the church. And the church points to the most important thing of God himself. And let me display that for you from the scriptures this morning. If you grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 7, is found on page 
977 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And we pick up one, the first of three descriptions of the church as a representative people. We see here that the church displays the wisdom of God. Follow with me. The Apostle Paul writes, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has had, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So often we are not fully aware of the significant things that are happening all around us every day in our life. Most of us go through our day, we have a fairly narrow sense of tunnel vision about our responsibilities, about the things in our purview, and so we do the best that we can. We work hard, we engage with those around us, we seek the next opportunity to be entertained, and we sleep, (laughs) and we wake up, and we repeat. All the while, things of incredible significance are happening all around us. Now sometimes, sometimes you might perceive the thing of significance. Another time you might even be a part of it. But for most of us, we're oblivious to the great number of things happening around us of significance. Some of us approach our life in church in a similar type of way. We do the very best that we can. We work hard, we try to serve Jesus well and serve each other well. We look for the next opportunity to be entertained or to enjoy, even in the purest sense, the fellowship that you have with each other. And all the while, we do not fully comprehend what God is doing of greater significance in our midst, even today as a local church. This was illustrated to us a couple weeks ago when we talked about the church as a worshiping people and how our worship joins the worship of those in the heavenly realms and comes into one great chorus before the throne of God. But today we see a similar dynamic in Ephesians chapter 3. Look with me at verse 10 again. It says that God is doing something well beyond our understanding and even our perception. He says in verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Think about that for a second. The church, the gathered people, contribute to something beyond themselves, something of great, great significance that many of us don't even know is happening. 
We display the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities, it says, in heavenly places. And that, of course, raises three very basic questions. What is the manifold wisdom of God? Who are these rulers and authorities? And why does it even matter that we display those things? So what is the manifold wisdom of God? Well, throughout the book of Ephesians, the apostle has been using language of mystery and God's will and wisdom. And he's been weaving them all together again and again and again to display this manifold wisdom. He says in chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about the mystery of his will, which is to unite all things to himself through Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, he prays that they might receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. Chapter 3, verse 4, he says that when they read this, this letter, he hopes that they can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 6, he says very plainly that the mystery is this. <laughs> That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then he comes to the section that we just read where he talks about unsearchable riches and a mystery hidden for ages. And then the revealing of the manifold wisdom of God. Mystery, wisdom, God's will, all coming together. And so it seems to me that the manifold wisdom of God, when you think about the trajectory of the book of Ephesians, this manifold wisdom that he is displaying, that the church displays, is the fact that God takes the people of promise, the Jews, and the people who were all far away, the Gentiles, all of you who aren't Jewish, and he makes us into one new man, or another way to say that is he unites us to himself and unites us to each other. You might say it this way. The manifold wisdom of God is that through the cross of Jesus, for all who seek forgiveness by faith, any kind of person, Jew or Gentile, any kind of person, will be united to God and united to each other. And so who are the heavenly rulers and authorities that he's talking about? The core of this gospel reality is displayed to a variety of people and beings. But here he makes it a point to describe that God takes all kinds of different people and brings them all together, united to himself and united to each other. And he says that this display is for the rulers and authority in heavenly places. At first reading, you might think to yourself... Well, those are the people in heaven who are of great importance. But upon further review, you'll find that actually it's the exact opposite of that. Because the heavenly places he's talking about is not heaven as a physical location. He's talking about the spiritual realm. And the rulers and authorities he's talking about are not the good guys. In fact, he says in Ephesians chapter 6, a description of these ruler and rulers and authorities. And it helps us clarify. He's encouraging the believers in Ephesians 6 to engage in spiritual battle. And he says this. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the rulers and authorities here are not friends. They're foes. They're not allies. They're enemies. They're not beings that will rejoice in the manifold wisdom of God. They're beings that will be angered by it. These are Satan and his demons in the spiritual realm who are directly opposed to the purposes of God and to God's will for you. And Paul says that the church displays God's wisdom to these spiritual powers who line up against him. The church displays this and by extension magnifies his great name against those who would oppose him. So why does it matter? Well, it matters because when you come to understand something of significance that's taking place around you in a way that you never realized before, then you change the way that you approach your priorities, don't you? Especially if you're actually participating in the activity itself. If the activity that you are participating in has a much greater significance than you realized before, then you're going to look at that activity very, very differently. And so often is the fact that we don't realize the significance of something until well after the fact. And by then it's too late to change. But God gives you a glimpse into the cosmic nature of the church right now so that we can change. I think of a number of years ago, Amy and I were living in London, England, and, and Amy was searching for a new job. And she had some administration skills and abilities, and she wanted to stay close to home, and she found a job posting and applied for a position as an executive assistant to a banker who lived in our town. And he was a kind man from India who lived in London. He had just left a rather large bank in the area, and began his own investment holdings company, which is now a private equity firm. Amy applied for the position as his executive assistant. She got the job. Immediately she was slightly overwhelmed because she'd never worked in financial services before and was trying to figure out the lay of the land. To make matters more interesting, this banker was somebody who we had never heard of, but apparently a lot of other people had. And as he began his new company, what started out as a small startup within months had hundreds of millions of dollars in holdings. He liaised with people from all over the world in high-profile positions, and she administered some of those conversations. She had no idea that as this company that she applied for that actually hadn't even started when she got the job, would eventually expand and become one of the fastest growing investment firms in the Middle East during that time and throughout Europe. And she worked hard. She did the best that she could. She did the next right thing before her. She was an early employee of a company that would have thousands of employees. And she had no idea how her participation would in some way aid the process of something much more significant than her daily roles or her paycheck. Because when you realize that, it changes your perspective on things. 
When you become a Christian, you become part of God's church universally. That's expressed as you participate locally in your local church. In this case, our church together. And you become part of something far more important than you conceive it to be at the time. When you become a Christian and you go to a local church, you say, I want to get to know other Christians and I want to learn a couple things. And I might like the music, or I might like the programs, or I might like the preaching. But when you become part of a church, you are engaged in proclaiming the excellencies of God and the manifold wisdom of him to principalities and powers that you cannot even see and do not even completely understand. Your participation displays the very gospel of God to the spiritual forces who oppose him. And in this way, friends, you are a representative people. The church is of great consequence because what it represents is of great consequence. That's the first description of representation that we see. The second that we're going to look at today is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 5, or we're going to have the text up on the screen behind me in just a minute, we see that the church displays another great reality. It not only displays God's great work to his enemies in the spiritual realm, the church also displays God's work to his enemies in the earthly realm. And does so by way of a display of reconciliation. And so this is what the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love this passage. He writes to the church at Corinth. He says, all of this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled to us. uh, Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's make a few observations. Observation number one is that the spiritual is very much connected to the physical. Insofar as spiritual rebirth looks forward to actual physical rebirth. Observation number two. That the work of Jesus, the gospel, is to become sin or take our sin so that we might become his righteousness. And that is how reconciliation works. A holy God gets involved in the lives of sinful people by removing their sin. (laughs) Through forgiveness of Christ. Observation number three is that the key concept he's trying to convey here is the concept of reconciliation. That God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now reconciliation is necessarily implies brokenness or an estranged relationship with God. You don't need to be reconciled if you're in a good relationship. You need to be reconciled if you're in an estranged relationship. 
And so were all of you and me and anyone who doesn't know Christ and have received his forgiveness. That's the state that humanity is in before knowing Jesus. But to reconcile, to reconcile means that he brought us near, that he settled the account of our sin, that he restores us into relationship with himself. And finally, observation number four is that after being reconciled, the apostles, and I would argue, by extension, the church, is given the ministry of reconciliation. That you are given the ministry of reconciliation. And I don't mean social reconciliation. I mean spiritual reconciliation to God himself. Because they represent and you represent God to the world with a message that says you no longer need to be estranged from God. You you no longer need to view him as far off. You no longer need to be worried that he is somehow against you. In fact, he's reconciling himself to you and you to himself. And I love that phrase in verse 20. He talks about Christians being ambassadors, and he says, God making his appeal through us. The very mouthpiece of God. Now, in a heated political environment like we're in right now, in a heated geopolitical environment, the role of an ambassador is extremely important. It's no surprise to you that an ambassador speaks for the president of the United States. And he speaks to leaders of other countries. And as he or she speaks, their words carry the weight of the office, as if the president himself is speaking. The ambassador is not tasked with the personal responsibility of following through with the promise, or the words, or the threat. The whole weight of the office behind him or her is tasked with that. In short, the ambassadors are representatives. Now, if you were the president of the United States and you needed people to be your ambassadors to all of the countries of the G7 summit that just happened over the last few days in Canada, and these ambassadors would go out before you and they would liaise with the other countries, the leaders of the other countries as they set the agenda for the summit, and that ambassador or those ambassadors would come back to you, they'd help you to understand, okay, what can I expect in this meeting? What can... I expect the tension points to be. Educate me on the issue from their perspective so that you could walk into a meeting with the leaders of the seven largest advanced economies in the world prepared for the meeting over two days. I wonder what type of person you would choose to be your ambassador. Would you choose a person who struggles with discipline to be your ambassador? Would you choose a person who doesn't always follow your lead to be your ambassador? Would you choose a person maybe who struggles to trust you as the leader if they don't fully see all the different parts and pieces and understand all the details of what you're doing? Would you choose a person to be your ambassador who used to be your enemy, but now somehow you've become friends? I don't think any of us would choose any of those people to be our ambassadors. I know I wouldn't. But that's exactly what God 
does when he makes the church his representatives. And he does so because who better to be the mouthpiece of a message of reconciliation than the ones who've experienced the benefits of reconciliation? Who better to testify to the glories and grace of God than those who have received the greatest benefits of the glories and the graces of God? Who better to talk about new birth in Jesus Christ than those who have been born again? And so he takes the church, he takes you, and he gives you the role of mouthpiece with a message of reconciliation. And we can't keep it to ourselves. Some of you have heard the story of Fritz Keisler. Fritz Keisler was a world-famous violinist in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and he earned a fortune with his concerts and compositions, and he generously gave most of the money away. So one day when he was on tour, he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips, but he wasn't able to buy it because he didn't have the money. And later, having raised enough money to meet the asking price of the seller, he returned to that seller, hoping to purchase the beautiful instrument. But to great dismay, he had found out that the instrument had been sold to a violin collector. And so Kaiser made his way to the new owner's home and offered to buy the violin. And the collector said that it had become his most prized possession, and he would not sell it. Keenly disappointed, Chrysler was about to leave when he had an idea. He said, could I play the instrument once more before it's consigned to silence? Permission was granted. And the great virtuoso filled the room with such heart-moving music that the collector's emotions were deeply stirred. And he responded, I have no right to keep it for myself. Christians, you are a representative people. And the message of reconciliation to God is something that we have no right to keep for ourselves. You represent the fact that God is reconciling the world to himself. And you represent this to the very people who need reconciliation the most. Those in your spheres of influence who don't know him. And if you're an ambassador and you don't speak the words of the master then how are the people supposed to know? There's an urgency about this representation. You've been commissioned to be an ambassador, but not just an ambassador on the far-off island that doesn't really have anything going on, that it has no consequence to the kingdom. You've been commissioned to be an ambassador to men and women and boys and girls all around you and in the community all around you that desperately and urgently needs the message of the king. And in this way, friends, you are a representative people. The church is of great consequence because it represents something of great consequence. I wonder if you look at it that way. The third way that we see the church in the role of representation is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. So, the text will be up on the screen behind me, or you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter gives a, a string of great descriptors or metaphors about the church. This is what he says in verses 9 and 10. 
He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so you see in the string of metaphors and the description about the church, some of the same themes that we just saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. But the metaphor that I want to focus on more keenly is the descriptor of the church as a royal priesthood. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And here we see a doctrine that Baptists have highlighted for centuries. And this is the wonderful truth of the priesthood of all believers. Some of us grew up in tradition, in a tradition, religious tradition with priests. Catholics and Anglicans and Orthodox and Episcopalians all have the role of a priest in their congregation. But you don't call me priest. <laughs> you don't call Pastor Chris a priest or any of our pastors or elders priests. And there's a particular reason for that. I remember uh, my first church ministry position. I was a youth pastor at the First Baptist Church of Reading, Massachusetts. And I found it so funny that that church, that church was made up of um, a handful of Protestants and a vast majority of former Catholics, 70, 80% former Catholics. And so when I came as a young youth pastor, I thought it was very interesting and, and confusing to me that some of the longtime Catholics would refer to the 23-year-old youth pastor as Father Nick. And when referring to me in the third person, they'd simply refer to me as the priest. Hey, priest, come, come over to my house for dinner tonight. Let's ask the priest and his wife to come on over. <laughs> Somebody got that. That was good. I didn't even know what a priest really did. And I certainly didn't feel like a priest. And so what does a priest do? In the Old Testament... The priest is the one who represents the people to God and in some ways represents God to the people. He mediates the relationship between the two. He does this as a representative. As a, and this role facilitates reconciliation. It facilitates Forgiveness, it facilitates worship, it facilitates communication. The priest was the one who offered sacrifices to God. The priest was the one who prayed to God on behalf of the people. The priest was the one who entered the Holy of Holies once a year on behalf of the people. The priest has access to God in the way that the people do not. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, refers to you, Christians, the church, as a royal priesthood. And just a couple of verses before that, in verse 5, he refers to us as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. This means that the mediator has changed... And the representation has changed. 
Scripture says that there's no longer mediators needed. There's simply one mediator between God and man, the person Jesus Christ, our great high priest he's referred to. The congregation of believers then, the church, all become priests because they have access now to God himself. They don't need a priest to mediate that access. Jesus has done it. And friends, when you start to think about what this means by way of your spiritual life, it means everything. (laughs) It means that you can pray to God and know that your prayers are heard. It means that you can ask for help and know that God will engage. It means that you can worship and know that it's not just wasted breath. It means that you don't need priests to offer sacrifices on the altar to God on your behalf. Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice as a lamb who was slain. And so now your sacrifices to God become your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the renewing of your minds as a sacrifice to him. It means that the blessings of God's presence are with all of those who believe. And the church represents access to God through Jesus Christ. The church is of great consequence because what it represents is of great consequence. You're starting to see it. At the beginning we set out to show another significant feature of the church that maybe we don't recognize, maybe we don't fully comprehend what is happening. And in doing so, raise in our minds the great importance of being part of a local church is going through our days and seeking to grow in faithfulness to God. And it becomes very clear then that as we become part of a church, that, that this is how we grow, but God does even greater things beyond what we see or know. And he doesn't do that if we're just disconnected out on our own. He does it through a gathered, redeemed, worshiping people. He does it through a representative people. You are that representative people. You represent the manifold wisdom of God to his spiritual enemies. You represent the reconciliation of God to his earthly enemies in hopes that they would be reconciled too. You represent access to God to all humanity, even to each other, in the role of royal priests, to him and for him. What an incredible representation the church really is. That God uses representatives to display the glory of his gospel in this divine drama of history. Have you ever heard or ever met a World War II veteran who was part of a great battle? To hear them tell the stories about it? At the time, they didn't know it would be a great battle, (laughs) but they fought hard. They didn't know their company would go down in the annals of history, but they engaged in what they perceived to be important at the moment. They didn't understand that the war would pivot on such battles as theirs, but they took their role seriously. They did not see the whole picture. But they caught a glimpse 
of the importance and significance of what was happening, and they acted with a corresponding commitment and valor and tenacity. Church, like the great soldier, you don't see the whole picture, but you catch a glimpse of what you're involved in and the eternal significance of it. And so the call is to act with the corresponding commitment and valor and tenacity. Because the Lord Jesus empowers you to do it by his spirit. For the sake of God's great name in the heavens and on the earth. And for his eternal purposes. So please pray with me. And we'll ask God to help us in this very thing. Father God. The fact that you proclaim your wisdom to your enemies who are cosmic powers is something that we can only catch a glimpse of. And the fact that you use us to do that blows our mind. God, the fact that you would use rebels who are made sons to be ambassadors and mouthpieces for you in a world that needs you is something that we most certainly do not take seriously enough. And so we pray for your help. And the fact that you give us access as priests, what a great privilege of being found in your son who paid the ultimate sacrifice. To you, God, be the glory and honor and wisdom and power as your mysterious will is revealed for us now and forever. Amen.